Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This week, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer is walking us through the series, A Life That Pleases God. In this series, we have been looking at what faith is. The author of Hebrews defines faith this way. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So far, we have seen different types of individuals who displayed remarkable faith in God. Each person's faith was on display in very different circumstances, and it was their faith in God that redeemed them. As we near the end of this series, we see that faith is like a race of endurance. How is your faith enduring? If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here is Heath with today's message, Run for Your Life. Thank me later. We'll split this up into two sermons rather than keep you here till 1.30. So Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. We're wrapping up this series on a life of faith, which is the life that pleases God. Because without faith, Hebrews 11.6 says, it's impossible to please God. That our life isn't pleasing to the Lord unless we continue to live by the very faith that we professed in Jesus from day one. That when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, it is a, is a good faith commitment to continue every day to trust in Jesus' word and to put our faith and trust in him and to walk obediently. Hebrews 11, 1 defined faith for us. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's what faith is. It's an assurance of a hope, and not a hope like I, I, I think something might happen, I hope it takes place, I'm rolling the dice on this one, it may or may not take place. This hope is an assurance, it's something I know is gonna happen. It's, you know, Christmas is coming. Is it too early to use that? Uh, Christmas is coming, that's a hope. We know it's coming. It's not that we don't think Christmas is going to roll around the corner here, uh, December 25th. It's that we know it is, and because of that, I am filled with hope. It, it reorients how I see things. It, uh, a lot of you, it brings joy to you. As soon as the time change hit, some of you guys decided to put up your Christmas tree because you just needed a little bit of hope. There's something joyful that's coming. My kids are gonna come home for Christmas. That's, that's my hope, and it's an assurance that this is taking place. It hasn't happened yet, but I know it will, and it's altering how I view the world and what I do. He says it's a conviction of things not seen, that we don't have evidence, so per se, of God, like just uh, scientific evidence that all says precisely you must believe in God because it's scientifically provable, but there is evidence for God. There's enough evidence that I can form a conclusion, like a, like a jury in a courtroom. We have all this evidence. We weren't there. We didn't see it. We can't say conclusively, but I believe he did or did not do this crime based on the, con- the evidence that's seen. So we have formed a conviction. There's a hope that we're living for, and it changes the way that we live life, doesn't it? All faith, if it's true faith, changes and alters how we live, doesn't it? If it isn't, it's not, if it doesn't, it's not true faith. What did James say in James chapter 2, verse 14? What good is it, my brothers, if he says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The, the obvious answer is no, it cannot. You can't say you believe something and then you don't act on it. And so we've got to act on the faith that we have here. And so the rest of Hebrews 11 reveals that true faith always works itself out. True faith doesn't just put their trust in Jesus at one moment and say, I sure don't want to go to hell. Glad Jesus is sending me to heaven, but I'm going to live my life the rest, of the, the rest of my life the way I want to. Okay, true faith says, I put my faith in Jesus. I'm going to continue to walk by faith. And then so after God defines in Hebrews 11:1, 1, what faith is, he opens up the family photo album and says, there's something that is a common trait amongst all of my children. Every last one of them continues to walk by faith. Every one of them. And then he gives us all kinds of examples of people that walk by faith. We've studied already. Uh, we saw by faith, Abel, he trusted in God's sacrifice. He's not gonna do like Cain did. He's gonna give God what he asked for. He's gonna trust in that sacrifice alone. We saw by faith, Enoch walked with God. He didn't want to be here on this earth any longer than he had to be. I think God, just out of his mercy, said, here's a guy who so longs to be in my presence. I'm just going to pluck him out of this earth. I'm going to bring him home. By faith, Noah, he feared God enough that he altered his life, used his own resources, time, and energy, and effort to build this ark through which he would save his family. He was a very missions-minded man in that way, and he was going to obey God. Abraham, by faith, obeyed God. Leave your country where it's comfortable, familiar, where all your family is, where you grew up, and I want you to go to a whole different land. You've never even heard of it. Just leave, and I'll give you the directions as we go. By faith, Sarah, 
God gives her a promise, you're gonna have a baby. I know you're past your childbearing years, but you're gonna have a baby. And Sarah laughs at him, like our faith. It's imperfect, but yet she trusts God and God rewards her despite having not believed him earlier. Uh, we saw by faith Abraham. Abraham had no idols. Faith does not have idols. Anything that we love more than Jesus is not a faith. And, and even his own son, would Abraham spare him? No, Abraham, he doesn't even, even his family's not an idol. I'm willing to offer that to you, God, if that's what you're asking for, by faith. We saw by faith, faith finished well. They passed on the, the Abrahamic covenant from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and on and on and on. They didn't receive it. They didn't see the fulfillment of that covenant. But faith says, I believe enough in God that that's what I want to pass on to my kids. Not just how to throw a football. I want to pass on to my kids my faith, what they see, how they see me practice my faith in God. By faith, we saw Moses' parents. They didn't fear man, but feared God. We're going to spare this one. On, at the risk of our own life, we're gonna spare this child. We saw by faith Moses rejected the comforts and the wealth of Egypt. He could have had it all. I mean, he did have it all. And he says, you know what? I'm not living for this temporary world. This is all gonna disappear. I'm gonna follow God. By faith, we saw that Israel's faith, they, they went public. God says, you know, in the midst of this, this tumultuous time where I'm bringing all these plagues in to, to harm all of your neighbors, you're gonna put blood on the door and say, I identify with a God that's doing that. They were public about their faith. By faith, they trusted God uh, to, to rescue them in trial. That under trial, we don't just buckle in our faith. We believe that God is gonna bring us through that trial. They get up against the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is surrounding them. They're gonna trust God anyway, and God delivers them across safely. We saw Joshua's faith. By faith, Joshua. Joshua, I want you to take your army, and rather than to siege it and do what makes sense to man, do what's logical, I want you to surround the city of Jericho. And I just want you to you know, march around, you know, blow trumpets, that kind of thing. You know, typical siege warfare. And I want you to see, just trust me that these walls are going to fall down. By faith, Rahab, she chose sides. She committed spiritual treason. I'm not gonna identify with the gods of the Canaanites any longer. I'm trusting in this God here. And even though all my friends and family aren't gonna follow God, I will. And she chose sides. That's what faith does. It doesn't just you know, stick its finger in the wind and hey, I wonder which way the wind is blowing. I'm gonna go that direction. If society says this is good, I'm gonna follow them. No, Rahab stuck, it, stuck her neck out. She hung that scarlet cord out her window and she and her family were saved. And then we get to the end, and what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Jephthah and, you know, all the other guys who suffered and persevered all the way to the end. Now, why do we take all this time to remind you of all these stories of Hebrews 11? Because Hebrews 12:1 demands it. It begins with the word, therefore, and any good Bible teacher is going to tell you when you see the word, therefore, you look to see what it's there for. Okay, it's, <clears throat> it means that what we're about to read is only understood by comparing it to all the things that we just read above it in Hebrews chapter 11. Unless you understand all of these people that we just, you know, that are used as examples of faith, you're not gonna fully understand the meaning of Hebrews 12, one. He says, therefore. <clears throat> and, he's, and so we're gonna see number one here that we're going to run after good examples. God has given us plenty of different examples of faith to look at through Hebrews chapter 11, you know, all the way through the chapter. And initially, when we read after, run after good examples, there's a bit of a hesitancy to ever say that you should follow the example of other godly men and women. You know, often we'll say, oh, don't look at me. <clears throat> I'm not an example of the faith. Uh, don't look at me. Don't look at people. Never look at people. Only look at God. And you know, Jesus is the ultimate example. No one's going to take that. Jesus is, you know, the type of which many things are the anti-type. He is the model. He is the perfect example. But I think sometimes we get very hesitant to say, don't look at me as an example of faith, partly because we're a little bit nervous about maybe God is gonna call me into a deeper level of, of, of suffering and maturity. We don't wanna be used as an example of faith. The bad thing is this. We are all, as Christians, already examples of faith. As soon as you out yourself as a Christian and say, I follow Jesus, you immediately are already an example of faith. We're either a good one or a bad one. And God calls us to be good examples of the faith, just like we saw in Hebrews chapter 11. We're supposed to have good examples that we follow as well. Don't be afraid to look at some human examples insofar as they follow Christ. Isn't that what Paul said? Imitate me as how? As I imitate Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate form and example of what faith looks like. But the Bible commonly says things like uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Uh, Paul gets done telling the Corinthians a bunch of Old Testament stories, and then he says this, now these things happen to them as an example. They're examples for who? 
He says they're examples. They were written down for our instruction. Philippians 3.17 says, brethren, join in following my example. That's really intimidating. I get that. But Paul says that. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul tells them to imitate his faith. He says the same thing twice in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 and 9. Imitate us. Play spiritual, Simon says. The way you see me living out my Christian faith, I want you to follow that. It's an expression of 2 Timothy 2.2. 2, the things that you have, you've, you've been taught uh, amongst many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That there is a mentoring that takes place in the Christian life by following human examples of faith. Hebrews 13.7 even says today, look at your spiritual leaders. It says, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. James 5.10-11 says, take the prophets as an example of faith. So all of you who have said, I'm a Christian, you're already an example of faith to somebody. We have to make sure that we're example, good examples of faith. Not lukewarm, not tepid examples of faith, certainly not bad or cold examples of faith, but that we are good examples. Uh, we need those human fleshly examples in front of us. And yes, they're imperfect, but we need those examples nonetheless. It's why we have track coaches, and we don't just tell a bunch of kids who want to run, here, watch this YouTube video. We need somebody there. Is that track coach as professional as maybe the guy in the video? No, but you still need a guy there who's saying, here, let me demonstrate the form for throwing a, a shot put or a javelin. Do they still throw javelins in high school? Uh, whatever it is, you know, uh, to do the high jump. Follow me. Look at my example. I may not be the best, but I'm certainly better than you. You can follow that example, and so we need that. Hebrews 11 is proof that you don't have to be perfect to be an example. I mean, look at some of these examples that we looked at here. God used Abraham as an example of faith. Was Abraham flawless? Not the Abraham in my Bible. Abraham in my Bible uh, was a liar at times. Said, hey, no, this, this woman here is my sister, actually, and almost allowed Abimelech to have intimacy with his own wife because he was afraid that maybe somebody would kill him for her. We saw Sarah laughed at God. You're gonna have a child. <laughs> Funniest thing I've ever heard, God. That, that didn't sound like faith. We saw that uh, Jacob, God promises him that, you know, that he's going to receive all these promises, but that wasn't good enough. God's word wasn't. And so he was going to go around there, and he cheats his brother out of his birthright. He cheats his brother uh, out of the blessing. Moses murdered somebody. That's pretty rough. You see, and yet, with all of these examples of faith, God isn't pointing out simply all the things that they did wrong, but he's saying, here, look at the things that they did right. You know, follow these examples of faith insofar as they approximate the pattern of Jesus Christ, as we're gonna see here. Jesus is the ultimate example. Verse two, which we'll have to get to the next week. He's gonna say, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus is the ultimate example, but that doesn't excuse us from serving as examples ourselves. They, God calls us to be examples in the faith to someone else because we already are. Now, we've got to ask ourselves this question here. Hebrews uh, 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, let's ask ourselves, who is this cloud of witnesses? I've heard this preached several different ways. Um, let me tell you who this cloud of witnesses is not. The cloud of witnesses are not our dead loved ones. They're not. A lot of times you hear people talking about our dead loved ones, and we take things that belong to God, and we apply it to our dead loved ones. Well, daddy's looking over me. Daddy sees all that we do. Uh, daddy's watching me. Daddy's there. I swear, I sense the presence of daddy in this room right now. Daddy's not going to let anything bad happen to us. Daddy's looking out for us. Daddy, help me get that job. I bet you daddy helped you on your math test tomorrow. What's wrong with that? Daddy isn't doing all that. Daddy's not there. We're attributing things that belong to God. We're supposed to remember that Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. We're to remember that Jesus watches over us at all times, that Jesus is the one who, who helps us through difficulty and trial, who empowers us, who strengthens us, who, is our, who comforts us. We're not allowed to give that to our ancestors who went before us. That's Shintoism a form of ancestor worship. And as much as we love, you know, Uncle Joe and Daddy and, and you know, Grandma, Mamma, Papa, they are not the ones who are the abiding presence in our life to which we look in a time of difficulty when we need help. And so the witnesses here are not 
our loved ones who went before us. I would also argue that it's not all the Old Testament saints who died who are watching us in a grandstands and witnessing our life. Ooh, look at this. You know, like it's some bizarre reality TV show. Did you see how Russ was living his life this week? You know, did you see how, you know, uh, you know Mike here is running? You know, they're sitting in the stands with popcorn and foam fingers and cheering us on. Go get them. It's not that kind of witness. In fact, here, if you look at this word, uh, this word witness, it's, it's connected to this word. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, therefore says, if you want to understand who these witnesses are, you have to read chapter 11. Those are the witnesses. So they are, in a sense, the Old Testament saints, but they're not observing us witness. They're testifying. That's what that word means. A witness here, a martus, from where we get the word martyr, Okay? It means someone who gives information. It's a, a witness in a court of law. You know, uh, your honor, I would like to call Randy Henneke to the stand. Uh, he will tell us what he saw on the night of the 23rd, and he will corroborate what we've been saying. That is a witness. They are, he's testifying. He's sharing what he knows. Okay? And so these witnesses are Old Testament saints who through their life, a life of faith, is testifying to us from the grave that the life of faith and following God is worth it. You ought to follow God in that way. I think it's appropriate to attach this to Hebrews 11.4 where it talks about Abel. And it says, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And so the lives of these Old Testament saints in Hebrews chapter 11, these examples are still speaking out to us from the grave. God is worth it to follow him. Live a life of faith. We did it. And God is worth it. Since we are surrounded by this grand cloud of witnesses, people that are corroborating, testifying uh, the message of the book of the Hebrews, that it's worth it to live by faith. He's calling us to do that as well. You see, we're not just supposed to look at these examples, these witnesses, and go, wow, I sure love reading these Old Testament Bible stories. Can you imagine what God did with Daniel? I can't wait to see Daniel one day and ask him about that. We're not just supposed to be impressed by these people. We're not supposed to collect spiritual stories in the Bible like a kid would baseball cards, you know, and just look, wow, look what Moses did there. Wow, look, Noah, this is great. And, and just be impressed by how God used people in the past. These examples are supposed to encourage us to follow in their footsteps and to follow that same race of living by faith. It's indicated by the words where he says in Hebrews 12:1, let us also. There is a race being run and God's people have always been running that race by faith. And he's saying, don't just watch other people do it. Don't just talk about great men of God and women of God before. Don't just look at great men and women of God here in the church today. He says, let us also. Let it challenge us to enter the race of God and to run by faith and to live by faith. Number two, he says, we need to, we're gonna run without distraction. He says here, lay aside every weight and sin that if you're a runner, there are certain things that you don't want that are going to trip you up. He says we need to lay aside every weight and sin. Now, these are distinguished from one another. They're, they're slightly different terms from one another, but they're both things that will hold us back from running uh, our, at top speed in the race of life. A weight here is distinguished from a sin. It's, it just refers to any kind of burden or impediment um, there's been some thought based on Hebrews 13, 9 that he's simply talking to the Jews about bringing in some Old Testament ceremony and, and things to, into the New Testament. Uh, but I would argue that because this is a very generalized term for weight, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not the baros of Galatians 6, which is a weight of sin, a burden of sin. Uh, this weight is just, it's more of a general term. It's an impediment. It's anything that is just heavy that slows us down. And so these end up really in our life in the form of distractions. Weights themselves are not wicked things, okay? It's, it's not associated with sin. Let's lay aside sin. He says, let us say, lay aside weights and sins. These weights could be anything in our life, all the, all the stuff that we accumulate in our life that slow us down from being able to follow God. What are, what are those things? Um, they're, they're things that aren't necessarily moral or immoral. They're just stuff. Uh, my lawn could be a weight, you know, that I idolize my lawn, and I have to have the, do they do that around here, lawn of the month or something, you know, where it's just everybody, wow, he's just got this, like, Disney manicured yard. That can be a weight to us, can't it? Uh, our extracurricular things that we do for fun, that can be a weight to us, can't it? 
Just that, that I just see my life as just, I work really hard, so whenever I have any time off, I am chasing every emotional high that I can. I'm always traveling here, going there, looking forward to a vacation, a cruise, an activity, a something, a, a show, a concert, anything to give my life a sense of fun to it because I work so hard. That can be a way where I'm just this pursuit of pleasure, a pursuit of uh, achievement can be a weight. It's not wrong to get good grades. Kids, get good grades. Uh, but can that ever become an idol in our life to the point where all that matters to me in my life is being not just the academic top 10%, I've got to be valedictorian. I'm not only that, but I have to add all these extracurricular things that I do so I look really good for, so I can get into the best college, so I can get the best job. But was it worth it if we had to sell out our soul to Jesus to get it? Those things aren't, aren't immoral. It's good to get good grades. It's good to achieve. It's good to do sports. It's good to do activities. It's good to have hobbies. But at some point in time, if we collect enough of these things in our life, you know when it's happening. When you're having to make decisions and you're saying Jesus gets second place and this now gets first place in my life. These are weights. They are hindrances to our ability to run. Paul warned Timothy about this. In the pastoral epistles, he's writing to these ministers, and Paul even tells Timothy, don't get distracted. 1 Timothy 2.4, he says, no soldier, and that's how he sees everybody who is called to serve God. You're a soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Would you be... I'm not a soldier. I'm thankful for all of those that, that we're going to recognize at the end of the service here. Those of you who have served our country and served, one, uh, served us, we're grateful for you guys. We know that you sacrificed a lot. He says, but when you're a soldier, he says, when you go <clears throat> overseas, your job is to please the, your officer who is over you. He tells you to do something. You don't sit here and argue with him. You don't debate the finer points of what he asked you to do. You do it. And he sees us in that same way when God asks us to do something. We do it. We don't have to question it. We follow God in obedience. And he says, and as we're doing this, just as an earthly soldier doesn't get involved in civilian pursuits, likewise, we don't either. We don't get distracted with things. Soldiers don't get all caught up in the things that we're doing here. You don't see soldiers deployed overseas out in the sand, you know, having these like grand birthday parties like we have. You don't see them, you know, bringing their whole wardrobe over with them. You get a sack and whatever you can stuff into that, that's what you bring. You know, you're packing light as a soldier. He says you don't get entangled in civilian pursuits. The word entangled there has the idea that we are interwoven into like a, like a mesh or a, even a net. He says, those of you who are soldiers of Jesus Christ, you can't be interwoven into this world, so tightly woven into this world system that it slows you down. Now you're entangled and you're so committed to so many other little occupations. You're so committed to so many activities and social clubs and events and parties and clubs and, and, and sports and everything else you can imagine. You are so interwoven into the system of this world, you're no longer free to serve God. Can we get there? I would argue that's where most Americans are because most of you, you're very motivated people. You're high achieving people. And that itself is a, is a good thing. But it can get to the place where as a soldier, we forget that our first priority is a soldier of Jesus Christ and to please the one who enlisted us, not to get so interwoven into the fabric of the United States that we forget that we are first and foremost a soldier of Jesus Christ. In this context here, we're talking about running a race. Now, I'm going uh, to call to the stand Jacob Medley, if you would come forward just briefly here. You are here this morning, are you not? Here is the man. Jacob Medley, if you know anything about him, he's a pretty active fellow. Uh, he, he does a lot. He, uh, he does a lot here in this church. He does a lot in the community. And I've also seen pictures. You run races, don't you, my brother? Oh, yeah. He's run. Oh, yeah. This is one of these crazy guys who runs a marathon. I don't even know how long these marathons are. 26.2. He knows that really quick. 26.2 miles. You're going to run a race like that. Now, you're about to run a race, 26.2 miles. What are you wearing? Barely anything. <laughs> <laughs> Modestly. He's still Short modest. <laughs> now, why do you choose that? It's light and effective. It is. Now, you're not wearing what you are right now probably in a, in a marathon, are you? Um, there's good reason for that. But we are thankful that you aren't wearing as little as possible sure. today. So, 
But as a runner, he's thinking very carefully about what he's going to put on and what he's going to wear. Now, I've seen runners, that sometimes, sometimes runners, when they're preparing for things like a marathon, thing, I've seen them with like little fanny packs or like a little, just a little something with their wallet and keys strapped to their chest. I'll tell you what we don't see is uh, one of these bad boys. Okay, whoa, would you look at that. Here we are. Jacob, help me run here today, buddy. Here we are. Jacob is getting ready to run a race, and here's what he's got. So... This is probably not something you're going to find on most distance runners, I'm assuming. Do you see many of these? No. Okay. So you don't run with this. There's, place, there's a time and place for this, okay? You go camping. You want to bring what you can bring uh, on, on the campground. And, but this is a lot of times how life is. When we approach life, God has called us to run a race, but, but we kind of feel like everybody around us has one of these nice big backpacks, and they put all kinds of fun stuff in there, you know? This isn't a hymnal. This is, uh, you know, they put all kinds of fun stuff in there. Activities, social stuff, we stick that in because, I mean, I, I got to have some fun. You know, I got to work. I got to work. I got kids to feed. <laughs> Oops, we just had another kid, so we better feed them more. You know, and we just keep stuffing things in there. You know, I've got, uh, I've got some clubs that I'm a part of. I've always been a part of it. Can't not be a part of it. It's tradition. And so we get there. We just keep loading this up. And we say, you know, I got, uh, I got other ambitions and dreams. I'm going to go to school so I can make more money. And so we just keep filling up this pack of ours in life with things that aren't bad. None of these things that I stuck in his pack are bad. But what will they do in the, in the, in a, during a race time? It's going to slow this brother down. He can't run effectively for Jesus because he's too bogged down. Now, none of these things are bad. But we do have to be very judicious and careful about what we are adding to the schedule of our life. Because what I've seen Christians do often is this. They get, we get too busy and we show up at church we're like, oh, I'm so tired. I'm so exhausted running this race. I'm so busy. And then our first inclination is always, church is making me too busy. I mean, isn't that our thought? The, the one thing I need to cut out of my life is church. I need to cut that out because I'm just too busy for that. The, it's never a thought of, you know what? Maybe this extracurricular thing that I'm doing is making me too busy. It's never a thought like that. Or, you know, maybe this other thing in my life that I'm doing where I'm, I'm constantly, you know, pleasure-seeking on every weekend and traveling all the time and trying to find this event and that event and this party and that party and this concert and this show and this movie and we're just constantly seeking pleasure. This is never what makes me busy. The thought is always, you know what? God's making me too busy. I need to slow down what I do for the Lord. When, in fact, what's the admonition here in Hebrews 12? We need to run the race with endurance. Okay? And so I would, I would argue here that Jacob would much rather unburden himself from this. Now, he's still not wearing whatever he wears when he's running. But I would argue you probably feel a little better, better. not having that burden around you, right? And, that, and the same is true with us as believers. It, it, is, it is a relieving and an unburdening that we feel when we begin to unweave ourselves from the tangle, entanglements of this world. Enjoy a few of those things, but don't live for those things. Enjoy a few of those things. But, but you know when it gets to the point where we are so enmeshed into this world, we are burdened down by this, we can no longer keep up with Jacob. Thank you, Jacob, for sharing with us here. That is a, just a very visible demonstration of what a lot of our, our Christian life looks like. We are burdened down, we're tired, we show up, we're just exhausted on Sunday. We just don't know how we can go on. Can I tell you that you, you can free yourself the only thing that really we're morally obligated to do is to serve God and then, you know, take care of our family. But we don't have to do, fulfill all the social expectations and pressure that society puts on us. Do not be conformed by this world, but transformed. So the admonition is very, is very obvious. We need to live simply. Because even just regular daily life can pull us down. Paul even said, Paul even went as far as to say in 1 Corinthians 7, he, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 7, he says, it's good for a man not to have a woman. None of you men amen that, by the way. Uh, it's good not to have a woman. He says later on, he says, I wish that all of you, verse 7, were as I am, single. And it's not that Paul hated marriage or that family isn't a good thing. Arguably, family is a great thing. I love my family. But he says this, uh, I want you to be free from anxiety. The, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. By the way, good, you know, girls, you're looking for a good guy? This is, this is how you know you got a good one. He doesn't have to be good looking. He doesn't have to be trim and in good shape. He doesn't have to make a lot of money. Um, he doesn't have to be a snappy dresser. What does he need to do? While he's single, 
Paul just assumes that the believer is consumed about how to please the Lord. That's girls is when you know you got a good guy, or guys, how you know you got a good girl. In their singleness, they're not saying, woohoo, I am free to travel the world, I'm free to spend my life on me, I don't have the hindrance of family and kids, so I can invest in me. Their thought, if their singleness is, I'm gonna use my singleness to, to please the Lord. But Paul says that's, that tends to be how the Christian starts out in life. He says, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, not sinful things, but just the stuff we're talking about, it, civilian entanglements. He says they're worried about worldly things, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. He says, I say this to your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided attention to the Lord. Now, this is not a popular message here. And I'm not encouraging that everybody stay single. We need our families. We love our families. Some people, God has called to a life of singleness so that you can serve the Lord with greater freedom. But how many times have we seen it too where you get a, a young guy or a young girl and they're following hard after the Lord and then they get married? And then what happens? They get bogged down, interwoven into the busyness of life and they just get drugged down and then their, their love and their zeal for God just wanes. And so I think what he's asking us to do is to look and say, this guy or this girl that you're with, is it drawing you closer to the Lord or further away? That's also, by the way, a real good indicator that you have a good one. When I met my wife, she always drew me closer to the Lord. She's encouraging us. We need to do this. Let's go here. Let's read the Bible. Let's pray together. She was, she was stirring me on toward the Lord. That's when I knew I had a good partner. But sometimes in a dating relationship, we can get a guy or a girl, and they're pulling us away from the Lord. They're taking us away from our devotion to him. That's usually an indicator that uh, it's something that's unhealthy for our life. Because can we honestly say something is the Lord's will when it's something that takes away our devotion from him? When it takes away our love for him? I don't care if that's a mate or if that's a girlfriend or boyfriend or if that's a job. If it takes me away from God rather than closer to him, is it really God's will? If I buy this thing and I acquire all these things but it takes me away from the Lord rather than closer to him, can we really say that's God's intention for my life, that I am less faithful to him now as a result? And so he's, he's asking us to contemplate these things. He says not to lay a restraint upon you, but thought, stop and think about it. Why do you exist? It's to run the race, to follow the Lord. Number three, we run without disqualification. He says we lay aside, he says, those weights but also the sins, he says, which sin which clings so closely to us. Now, there's been a lot of debate as to what this sin is, a lot of theological discussion. If you read certain versions of the Bible, it'll talk about a sin or a specific sin. It'll talk about the sin which so easily besets us. If you've ever heard of the term of a besetting sin, they're talking about this from one of the older uh, translations. Are we talking about one particular sin or are we talking about sin in general? Uh, I would argue here that we're actually talking about sin in general. He's talking about any sin. It's not just one sin. It's not like, I mean, yes, there's probably particular sins that we're a little more weak to than maybe other people are. But all sin clings, he says, so closely to us. Like we saw with this backpack. You know, uh, we were talking about distractions in the world, these weights they're things that are just loose and clanking around on us like wearing loose-fitting clothing. Typically, your, your men, they would gird up the loins. You ever heard that term in the Bible? It means they would take their robe and they would tuck it into their belt so that there's not free-flowing clothing around them to trip them up and slow them down. This here isn't talking about that. It's talking about clothes, not that's too loose, but clothes that are too tight. It's clinging to, so tightly to us. It's hindering our ability to walk with, walk with God. And he says, that's what sin does to us. This word cling here refers to something that adheres or surrounds us. It kind of binds us together so that we can't walk for the Lord. That's what all sin does. I think it would accurately describe Lazarus. If you were here last Sunday night, we were talking about how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And when Lazarus came out of the tomb uh, from that deadness of life, that deadness from which he was called out by Jesus from, we see that he was still had the wrappings of his old life around him. The wrappings, the, the, the cloth and the spices he was buried with and he was tied up in it and he was so hindered. He's stumbling his way toward Jesus, but he still had pieces of his old life attached to him. And Jesus commands, hey, you need to get around this fellow and help him unbind himself from these things which are wrapped tightly around him. I think that's a good word picture of, of what we're facing here with sin. When we get into sin, it is their trappings of our past and they bind us together so that we cannot move effectively forward for Jesus Christ. What sin is that? Well, let me ask you this. Is there any sin 
that doesn't hinder you. I mean, sure, we know the big sins will hinder you, right? I mean, is there anybody who really thinks you can walk with Jesus and murder people? A guy who is a, you know, a serial killer who also writes a really lovely devotional for the year. We don't believe in that. There's probably none of you who thought you're gonna walk with Jesus this morning, uh, but on the way to church, let's get some money for our tithe by knocking over this here ATM. You know, we all know those kind of sins. They hinder your walk with Jesus. So what about some of our more popular common sins, things that we enjoy that don't feel very much like sin? What about pride? Will pride bind you and hinder you from walking forward with Jesus when you think so highly of yourself that the world needs to all please you and that you're more important than others? Or what about other little sins like, you know, that we consider little, you know, the sins of our tongue, gossip, slander, backbiting, those aren't that big. I can walk with Jesus and do that. Can you? Or are those the trappings of our past? That's how the world lives, and it hinders us from our walk with God. All sin, everything that is not of faith, Romans 14, 23 says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It's been suggested that this sin refers to unbelief. Because the truth is, the, the previous, whole previous chapter is talking about faith. What's the opposite of faith? It's a lack of faith or unbelief. Instead of trusting God, obeying God, and moving forward through faith, we're going to hold back, and we're going to choose to live our life our way. We're going to do things our way and still please God. Does that work? Ask Cain. God says, here, I want you to offer me a sacrifice of this animal, and this blood must be given in sacrifice. And Cain says, well, you know, I hear what you're saying, God, but I'm a farmer, and so I'm going to offer you these vegetables here. I think that's going to be all right. Did that work out well for Cain? It did not. It wasn't the sacrifice God asked for. And he's banished from society. The guy's a you know, murderer. Saul, God tells Saul, I want you to destroy all of, this, uh, all of the wickedness of the Amalekites and you're gonna take every human life and it's gonna be gone. Even the animals are gone. Did Saul follow that? Saul says, God, I hear what you're saying about destroying this whole thing, but there's some good stuff we can do with this here. So I've got another idea. I, I say we spare Agag. Okay, and I say, hear me out, I think we ought to spare the best of the animals. Saul thought he knew better. He's got a better idea. It's unbelief. Did that end well for Saul? He lost his kingdom, he lost his family, and the brother committed suicide at the end of his life. It never pays to just follow your own way, to say, God, I hear what you're saying here, but, but hear me out, I'm gonna do it a little differently. Even Eve at the be in the garden at the beginning, what does God tell him? Gives him a command. You're not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And that sounded great. Eve's like, no problem, until she ran into the serpent. And Satan, speaking through this serpent, uh, gets her to believe otherwise. He says, you won't surely die. Don't believe everything you read in the Bible. He says, for God knows the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. God is withholding something good from you. And isn't that the, the lie we believe every time we sin? I don't care what the sin is. Isn't that what we believe. God gives us a command in the Bible says something is morally good or morally evil and we do it anyhow and when we do so, every time we sin, it's a choice to disbelieve God. Every sin ultimately arises from unbelief. God says, you know, don't commit adultery. Well, you know, God, this is just kind of how we live today so I think I know better and you're withholding something good for me so I'm gonna do it anyway. It arises from unbelief. I don't believe God's word is true. Well, you know, the Bible says, don't complain, don't slander, don't sin with your tongue. Well, you know, God, I have a right to express my opinions and my values, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak evil to people and about people anyhow, because I feel like I have a right to do that. We have overstepped God. It arises from unbelief. I don't really believe that God has my best in mind, that, that it's going to lead to our best outcome and glorify him. I'm gonna do my own thing. I'm gonna go my own way. And so all sin arises from unbelief. It's the opposite of living by faith. It's a choice to believe Satan over God, just like the garden. It's something we all struggle against, though, don't we? But Paul, did he ever struggle? Did he ever feel that struggle with sin? I mean, the man who wrote most of the New Testament, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he says in Romans seven fifteen, I don't understand my own actions. He says, I do, for I do not do what I want. In other words, the holy life that I wish I could live in Christ, I struggle with that. He says, and the things, he says, I do the very things I hate. And so he feels that warring of the flesh against the spirit, that our old body and unredeemed humanness still, still tells us, hey, why don't you give in to yourself? Why don't you live for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, uh, to acquire things, to gratify yourself? 
don't you live for the pride of life? Put you first. Make sure that people respect and honor you. And we want to live for these things. We feel that pull in us. And Paul says, I feel that. And to the point where he'll eventually express, oh, wretched man that I am, I want to be delivered from this body of death. These sins hinder our ability to walk with God. Several times in the Bible, it refers to sins as being something like a snare. Proverbs 29, 6. In the transgression of an evil man, a transgression is when we, we choose to cross the line. Here's a line, don't go past it, this is immoral. And we go past it anyway. He says, in that transgression, he says, there is a snare. Probably not too many trappers in here, but maybe some of you guys are trappers. And you know what a snare is. You put some food out or something for an animal. You have this little noose or something. It's attached to a stick or whatever. And, and this little rabbit sees a free, easy meal. I'm hungry. I think I'm going to go after this. As soon as he does, that, that little noose tightens up around his leg and pulls him up straight in the air. And that little rabbit's not going anywhere. He's going to be somebody's lunch. The Bible says that's what sin does to us. It, it clings to us. It holds us back from serving God. It's a snare. It strings us up. It looks like an easy meal. It looks like something that's going to be beneficial or good for me. In the end, it actually holds me back in my ability to run for him. Sin can even disqualify us as believers. Paul feared this in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. He says, I discipline my body. Some of your old translations might say, I buffet, not buffet my body. I don't want you all going to the golden corral after church, I buffet my body. He said, it literally means to strike under the eye. He says, I, I discipline, I, I do painful things with my body to bring it into submission so that I won't be a slave to sin. He says, I discipline my body to keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now where Paul served and uh, where he was preaching, there was, a, there was a series of games called the Isthmian Games. Uh, many, many theologians believe that's what he had in mind when he was talking about all these references to running the race and being disqualified. In these Isthmian games, you'd have them every couple of years. It was sort of like the Olympics, but it was in honor of Poseidon. And so they'd get together, and everybody who competed in these different athletic events, they would all make these vows, I'm going to compete. But when I do, I promise I will practice for at least 10 months prior. I promise that in whatever competition I'm in, I'm gonna follow the rules. I will not break the rules. I will not go out of my line. I won't punch the guy next to me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna obey correct, the, the rules and follow and run the race properly. I'm going to, they promise to abstain from a number of different vices. I'm not gonna do this. I'm not gonna do that. I'm, and so there was a certain set of rules that you had to follow to compete in the Isthmian Games. And if it was found out after you ran that you cheated, that you did something wrong, you didn't, you break you broke oath with them. Your, your reward would be taken away. Or if it was found out ahead of time, you would be disqualified. You wouldn't be allowed to run at all. And so what Paul is fearing here through sin and disqualification is not that he's going to lose his salvation, okay? When you, when you broke the rules with the Isthmian Games, it's not like they executed you for it. Instead, Paul is concerned that he will lose his reward or his position, in his ability to serve God because of sin, and sin can do that. Ongoing, protracted sins, and just, it can lead you to a place where God can't use you anymore. You're not qualified, according to 1 Peter 3, uh, or, uh, 1 Timothy 3 and uh, Titus 1, you're not qualified to serve the ministry any longer. You're done. You can't run. And Paul says he fears that. He doesn't wanna, he doesn't wanna lose his reward. Now, what kind of reward are we talking about here? We've talked about it before from 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, where Paul talks about uh, this reward. He says, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that everyone may receive in, his, uh, receive in their body what is due for him, whether good or evil. The things that you have done that every believer, someday we're going to stand before God in front of a judgment seat. This is different than the white throne where, they're, where lost men are judged for their sins. This is called the, uh, the judgment seat. And the Greek word is called, it's B-E-M-A, the Bema seat. Uh, it's a different thing in an athletic competition. It just refers to a judicial bench where they would calculate whether or not you follow the rules, if you did things correctly, and then how well did you run? Were you qualified? And how well did you do? And there would be rewards given for how you performed. The Bible says that there will come a place in every believer's life where each one of us, we will stand before God, not to give an account for our sins. Those were done away with in Jesus. But how'd you run the race? There's gonna be a judicial bench by which God brings us before him and say, let's see how you ran. Did you run for good things or empty things? 
Did you fill your backpack up with just all kinds of stuff that the world is doing around you? Did you just fill up your life with heavy things and you were so slow getting around that track that there's really, there's not a lot of reward on the other side of that. You just lived for earthly things. You entangled yourself and meshed yourself into the system of this world. You didn't run much for me, you ran for you. Or worse yet, did you, did you live a life of just continual habitual sin and you're just, you're, you know, leaving a wake of sin and destruction behind you and leads to a loss of reward? Not losing your salvation, but that reward is not as significant as what it could be. And so because of this, to run faithfully, Hebrews encourages us to take our weights and our sins, those, those things that are not bad but are holding us back, and those things that are sinful that are constricting us and keeping them from running a race, and he tells us to lay aside those things. And it doesn't just mean to kind of put down like a backpack. I put it down, but I'm going to pick it back up eventually. The word lay aside here means to lay aside with the intention of renouncing it. I'm never going back to that. I don't want that back in my life. All it does is it holds me back from following Jesus. It constricts my life with sin. It damages my life and everybody around me. I'm done with that. I'm laying it aside. Back in junior high, I used to run a little bit of track I didn't maintain that because I knew God wanted me in the ministry, and so I was just going to focus on things that would get me comfortable in front of people. So I stopped doing track that, and I had no talent. So <clears throat> I ran track, though, for a little bit. Now, part of my problem was I didn't have the right equipment. Unfortunately for me in our junior high years was my family's most difficult years, probably our poorest years of life. And so I wanted to run track, but I didn't have track shoes. We had whatever uh, the Handicap Village General Store could give us. That was our thrift store in Clear Lake. And so whatever it was at that thrift store, that's what I got. And so I had like some big, heavy, like early 1980s pair of like canvas Wilson tennis shoes. And don't picture tennis shoes like you're wearing today. Imagine if you were to put like a two-inch elevator platform on the bottoms of these shoes. This big, thick, you know, band of rubber all the way underneath this thing, maybe two inches taller. Uh, and it was so old, the rubber had gone from a nice shade of white to a lovely shade of yellow. You ever seen thrift store shoes like that? And there's just, they're plasticky, they're hard. You can't, you get no grip, you can't run. And these shoes were like three pounds each. I mean, they were just heavy. And I ran track in those. About wiped out in Hampton, Iowa on their cinder track, just slipping and sliding all over that thing. Eventually, though, we kept visiting the thrift store and we found a pair of track spikes, okay? And I had these shoes, and by comparison, it was just like, you know, picking up a tissue paper. <laughs> like a tissue paper with metal spikes at the bottom of them. And I, I remember running with those shoes the first time on a track thinking, my life has changed. I might actually win a race if I'm not wearing boat anchors on the bottom of my feet. So guess what I do with those, those ancient old yellowed Wilson tennis shoes? I laid them aside. I took these shoes and I, I, I didn't bury them, but I wanted to. Uh, I set them aside, I put them in the bottom of the closet and was like, never going back. I have these track spikes over here. I'm never gonna run with these Wilsons anymore. They're gone, they're out of my life. I never went back to them because all I saw is that those things slow down my, my race. It slows down my ability to run. And so I'm laying that aside. I'm making a choice not to go back to it. That's what God asks us to do with, our, with the weights of life and the sins in our life is to observe that it's hindering you from doing the one thing that you need to get right in life. You can fail at a lot of things and still be a successful Christian. You may not earn all the money that your parents wanted you to. You may not have married the person that your parents wanted you to. Uh, you may not be this great civic warrior for your community like some people are. But if you get it right with Jesus, you've been a success in life. And you've got to make that your priority. And then you've got to look at all these other things that I can do. I'm going to do some of this and some of this and some of this. And the rest of it, I'm laying aside. It's holding me back. Every time I get a choice between God and this, this always wins. That I'm letting go. I'm laying that weight aside. I'm laying that sin aside. That sin that I've been struggling with my whole life, I'm going to get serious about it. I'm going to put it aside. I'm going to remove it because it, it robs me of my desire to read the Bible. It, it makes me feel like a phony when I pray. It makes me want to avoid being at church because men don't come to the light lest their evil deeds be reproved. I don't want to be around a bunch of people following Jesus when I'm not. And so I feel awkward. And so I'm going to distance myself from the church and from God. 
When we identify those things in our heart and life, guys, we've got to make a hard choice to distance ourselves from weights and sins and to, and to allow God to let us to run freely. Put on those track spikes, leave the Wilsons in the closet. Number four, he calls us to run the race with endurance. He says, run the race with, run with endurance the race that is set before us. The word endurance indicates that, that the Christian life is not a sprint. I was never a sprinter in junior high. I didn't just have that quick reflexive speed to take off and, and just blow all the other runners out of the water. Uh, I ran like mid-level kind of running, 400, 800, you know, sometimes a mile. But uh, the Christian life, he says, we need to run with endurance. It means uh, endurance is a word that we've studied before. Hupomeno, uh, hupomone comes from the word meno, which means to remain and hupo, underneath, means we re remain up underneath a burden for a long time. We are consistent. Sometimes the word is translated patience. It's used in Luke 8 of the farmer who consistently and patiently works that field, works hard, slaves under the sun, sweat of the brow, and yet there's, there's little to nothing to show for it yet. But he's working in faith, and he's working hard knowing that that's coming. He's remaining up under a burden because he knows there's a reward on the other side of this. That's what God is calling us to, to run the race with endurance. We all figured out that Christianity is not a sprint, right? But have you seen people who treated it like a sprint? They got, you know, they made a profession of faith and they just start running for Jesus and they're just going and going, they're going for Jesus and all of a sudden something bad happens they're like, er, hang on, I don't know that I'm really into running for Jesus like this and they slow down and they begin, then they kind of walk the, their, their Christian life and eventually they kind of sit down or worse yet, they're like, I'm done running all together and they walk out and they leave. Christianity is not a strength. It's not about you making a profession of faith as a kid, walking an aisle, praying a prayer, you know, just repeating something after somebody, serving Jesus for a little bit, and then backing off. Christianity is something we run with endurance. It means we find a pace of life of following Jesus and obeying him, and we are consistent. A word might, we might use would be steadfast. That we don't let things hinder our walk with him. We run with endurance. Endurance implies that there are things that are opposing our ability to follow Jesus well. And there's plenty of those things. Distractions in life, health issues, can that ever get in our way of following Jesus? Uh, lots of different things. And he wants us to run with endurance, find a pace of life, be consistent. Don't, don't, let, don't let somebody else's faithlessness make you unfaithful. Somebody hurts your feelings in church, we don't walk away on church. You know, otherwise we're following man, not God. We don't want to be that guy. Ask yourself honestly, when you get up in the morning on a Sunday and you look out the window and it's rainy outside, does that affect your decision to come to church or not? Endurance means external things don't affect my internal faithfulness. I don't let external things that are happening change who I am. I don't let, if you're nasty to me, it doesn't mean I become nasty to you. Then I, am, I remain up under this and I continue to walk faithfully with endurance. It's something we're commanded to add to our faith. 2 Peter 1.6 says that we, you know, he's talking about all these, you know, add to your faith virtue and virtue knowledge, self-control. And one of those things he asks us to add to our faith in that process of maturing is steadfastness. It's the same word, hupomone. That we are to be faithful and predictable, you know, later in the race of life, just as we were when we first got to know Jesus. In fact, a sign of spiritual immaturity is inconsistency, isn't it? Anywhere in life, a sign of immaturity is inconsistency. That it doesn't take much to get me out of my game. You know, a little kid throwing pitches in a little league game, you know, and somebody's calling names and he's noticing them and he's getting all bothered and it's, it's, it's throwing, taking him out of his game. That's immaturity. Major league pitchers, they got people booing and hissing at them all the time and they're still throwing those pitches right across the plate. Their, their maturity causes them to be consistent. No matter what these distractions are around me, no matter what you say about me, no matter what you do, no matter how I'm feeling, I'm going to come through and I'm going to deliver that pitch across home plate. Immaturity is when we allow people to rock our faith. We allow circumstances to change who I am. Well, I'm struggling right now, so I guess I'm not gonna give to God. Well, somebody hurt my feelings, I guess I'm not gonna go to church. Well, this person was mean to me, so I'm gonna pull back and I'm, I'm, going to, I'm gonna distance myself, or worse yet, I'm gonna treat them with the same evil they gave me. That's not steadfast, that's not consistent. Well, I, I would go to church, but you know, it's raining out, so I think I'll stay home. 
you know, and just, just all these little things that just, they hinder our walk with God. They're, they're, they're signs of immaturity. Oh, I want to help out with this ministry and this activity. And then you're, you're always the one calling up Saturday night, hey, I can't do it. Hope it works out for you. You know, that's inconsistency. We all have things happen to us. But when we see that these things are a pattern of our life, friends, God has called us to maturity, to run the race with endurance. In PE, we'd always see these guys who wouldn't run with endurance. You know, they'd, you always get somebody who, maybe he wants to make a name for himself at the beginning of this long distance race, and he just gives everything he has on the track. And then halfway through the mile or two that you're running, you know, everybody's lapping him because that guy gave everything he had on lap one. There wasn't a consistent pace of life that he was running. And then by the end of the race, you know, there's some people during the presidential fitness test we do in PE every year, you're running the mile, you get to the last and they're walking that last lap because they, they wanted some glory on that first or second lap, but they didn't have enough to finish it. They were just a flash in the pan. They were just sprinting and then walking. God wants us to run with endurance, to run well all the way to the end. And if you have a good distance runner, that's what they do. They will run, they will find a good pace of life, and as they near the finish line, what do they do? Then they kick it in. Then they run hard. And that's what life is. The Christian life isn't about starting well, it's about finishing well. It's about finding a good, consistent pace of life that you're consistently following Jesus, consistently reading your Bible, consistently praying, consistently a part of this covenanted community of believers. And then as you start to approach the finish line, you're getting to the end of your life, do you back off and you just sit down and say, well, it's your turn to run? No, we, we, in as much as God gives us ability, we run until the end. We serve God until the last day we have breath. Hebrews 11 implies that he says that there is a race that is set before us, that there's somebody beyond us, God, who has given us a path to follow and encourages us to follow in that race. That he has made his will known to us as clear as a, the lines on a quarter mile track. You gotta stay in those lines. You gotta run the race faithfully. You've got to walk obediently. You know, when I ran track in junior high, we had a, we had a track coach. His name was Coach Putz, spelled P-U-T-Z. Yes, we called him Coach Putz, which is Yiddish for a stupid man. Uh, he didn't like that too much. But Coach Putz, uh, he would see us run. He would try us out. Hey, Bauer, go ahead and try throwing this shot put. Let's see how you do. Okay, next, well, let's try you on this. You know, I wasn't the shot put guy, but he'd take the big strong guys. You know, they were no good on the long distance, but what could they do? They could throw that heavy ball really far. And he'd have somebody else, he'd get these long, tall, skinny, lanky guys, you know, and he'd like, okay, with those legs, you're gonna run like the 75-mile race. So we're gonna get you on that long distance thing that, that we do. Uh, a guy like me, he always put me on 400 and 800 meter hurdles for whatever reason. I just, my height, I barely cleared them and I could, I could run them pretty decently. And so the thing was is that we didn't get to choose our events. Our coach laid out a path for each one of us there was a race that he set before us. He's like, you're gonna run this. This guy over here is gonna run this. You're gonna run that. This guy's gonna run this. And I think the same is true for each one of us in our life of faith. Your life of faith may not look exactly like everybody else, but there's still a race that your coach has called you into. And no matter whether or not we agreed with Coach Putz about where he put us in the race, we had to run hard for him. We had to run for the glory of the Clear Lake Lions. And whatever that race was that he gave us to follow, we wanted to be faithful and obedient and endure until the very end. And I think that's the message that we have here. Paul, did he not run a race? What did he say at the end of his life to Timothy? He's writing in 2 Timothy. The guy's about to be executed. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And having finished, what did he say? I have kept the faith. And I think that's a challenge for each one of us. God has a race for each one of us that he has called you into. A certain event, a certain activity, a certain way of life, a way to be a light for the gospel in your place of work. The question is, are you being faithful to that? Are you running the race well? Are you running it with endurance? Are you consistent in your Christian life? Or are you like, I'm on fire for Jesus, now I'm completely cold. Where'd they go? I don't even know where they are. <laughs> I'm, oh, now I'm on fire for Jesus again, but now I'm, they're, they're gone again. They're unpredictable. God wants us to run consistently with patience and endurance the race that he has set before us just as those in Hebrews 11 did and testified, it's worth it to run by faith. And now he says, it's not enough that they live by faith. Let us also. They ran well. They ran with endurance. The question now that remains is, will we? They've passed the baton. They put it in our hands. Are we going to run the race well? If God was going to write Hebrews 11 again, 
would he have anything about our life that he could include that is of faith? Let's close. Father, we thank you today that we have, as we study your word, that you have called us to run the race, to run in, according to the rules, not to be disqualified, to run with endurance, to find a good pace of life, and to, to make sure that we don't allow ourselves to be so entangled and enmeshed into this world that, we, that we're burdened down. God, I pray that you would free us up this morning, unburdened by sin, unburdened by just an excess of activity as we try to wring every bit of life we can out of this uh, this lifestyle that we've created, but instead, God, to make sure that we get the one most important thing done well, and that is in, in following Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. God, may we follow his example, and may we leave an example behind that others can follow as well. We just offer this in Christ. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.